Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Natchang Rinpoche. Chapter 16, Part 1. I'd had bad times. I'd had losses. I'd had tragedies too, but I'd also had more good times than the most demanding experiential glutton could wish. Life was good, as far as I could see, and I'd lived more of it than anyone else I knew. The view at the Bardo, therefore, still seemed glorious to me in every direction, in spite of everything, and because of everything. Chapter 16, Lama Chime, The Doors of Perception, 1970 to 1971. And along with indifference to space, there was an even more complete indifference to time. I could, of course, have looked at my watch, but my watch, I knew, was in another universe. My actual experience had been, was still, of an indefinite duration. Or, alternatively, of a perpetual present made up of one continually changing apocalypse. Aldous Huxley from The Doors of Perception. Farnham Art School. Suddenly I was there. I was close, it was close to what I imagined, whilst at the same time being almost entirely other. I noted in my art school pocket notebook at the time, one day, I hope, I will be able to arrive somewhere, anywhere, with no preconceptions or expectations at all. Why do people go out and buy colour picture books of Ulaanbaatar before going to Mongolia? Might they think they'd gone to Clacton-on-Sea if Ulaanbaatar didn't match the picture books? I was the kind of obstreperous young lunatic who would have such questions. Courses are structured, true, but an art school is made of people rather than seminars and buildings. The foundation course at Hatch Mill was, therefore, something I was going to discover incrementally through the dramatis personae. It would unfold as the other art students made themselves apparent as characters in the living play. Hatch Mill, the foundation year annex building, was idyllic. An old mill house, redolent of down at heel splendour, sat on the southern bank of the River Way. It was an art school as art schools ought to be, and still should be. And there I was with some thirty confederates all come from somewhere or other, but all alive to the fact that we were artists. Most of us had been oddities in our previous educational establishments, but now we were somehow conventional in our unconventionality. I was happy to be in such a marvellous place with so many fascinating people and possibilities. I could describe the course in detail, but that is not my purpose beyond the odd reference. One of the first things that struck me 
was that I was not unusual in being a Buddhist. I didn't announce the fact, but it came out in everyday conversation quite naturally. Everyone was interested in anything concerning reality and the exploration of reality. And so, although no one claimed to be definitively Buddhist, everyone had complete sympathy with the notion. Buddhist ideas were part of the lingua franca of the time and place, and it was taken for granted that one respected such ideas. Hatchmill was an environment where interest in Buddhism was taken for granted. Me too, I've always been some kind of Buddhist. But I wondered how serious some people were when they made that kind of statement. Still, at least I knew I could have conversations about reality and the nature of perception. It was woven into the structure of the act of painting. There was always a question hanging there about what was real. What was the colour in front of your eyes? Was it the same for everyone? Was it a fixed experience? What was going on when the life model's skin looked almost green, as if flesh pink and viridian were sparkling with each other? It was not entirely unlike watching a play, apart from my being one of the actors albeit an actor who only had the most rudimentary grasp of his lines. It was, at first, not easy to tell what or who was real or unreal. I knew that I wasn't acting a part, but some people seemed somehow larger than life. Where did they find their clothes? There was a fellow who dressed like Gandalf, and another dressed in buckskin leggings with a suede shirt and doublet. Several women were witch-inspired, and one seemed to have studied Cruella de Vil in close detail. Some students made me feel almost conservative in my dress. That was all to the good. I was glad of it. This was a brave new world, and I hoped I was going to be one of the heroes in the adventure. Pete Bridgewater was there, from Virginia Waters School. So was Rosemary Ryder, but they were not quite who they had been mere months earlier. They'd both shifted somehow, and I wondered if this was how they'd always been. They both seemed older and wiser than when I'd last seen them in July, as if years had passed. People were reading every kind of book about every kind of philosophy and religion. The list was endless, and I wanted to read everything that everyone was reading. Nessun Dorma. People would quote out of the blue. You know, conscious faith is freedom, emotional faith is slavery, mechanical faith is foolishness. Gurdjieff said that. Then someone else would say, you have to be comfortable to be on your own. If you are lonely when you're alone, you are in bad company. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote that. It was as if everyone had the wisdom of the world on tap 
and could let you in on the secret of it all at any moment. I wished I could quote Buddhism as well as they could quote almost anyone. Sometimes someone would just start reading something out loud and everyone would stop reading and listen. So, this is cool. This is what Aldous Huxley says. The mind is its own place and the place is inhabited by the insane and the exceptionally gifted are so different from the places where ordinary men and women live that there is little or no common ground of memory to serve as a basis for understanding or fellow feeling. Words are uttered but fail to enlighten. The things and events to which the symbols refer belong to mutually exclusive realms of experience. That's from his book, The Doors of Perception. Then there'd be some conversation before everyone went back to reading. And then the lunch break would come to an end and everyone would go back to their painting or sculpture or whatever it was. I wished that state education had been like this, but there was no room for regret of that kind. This was what was happening. And I could say whatever I wanted about anything. The idea of rebirth was an accepted norm. Not everybody wanted to meditate, but everyone accepted that it was an entirely valid engagement with life. And sure, I was going to India. Who wouldn't want to go to India? And in fact, everyone was going at some point or other. It was the done thing. It was finishing school. You go to art school, and when it's over, you complete your education by heading east. It made sense. In terms of art school, going to the east was entirely conventional behaviour. It was an intriguing experience to feel part of a coherent culture. I might be a weirdo to society at large, but here I was, if anything, one of the less bizarre characters. I had no desire to be more bizarre than thou, as it enabled me to be the blues Buddhist I'd been for so long. There was no contradiction. There was nothing to prove. Occasionally I went up to London to the Buddhist society. Lama Chime Rinpoche gave talks there from time to time. It was marvellous to meet a Tibetan Lama at long last and to be able to ask the questions after his talks. Lama Chime Rinpoche was extremely helpful with questions concerning silent sitting meditation and he clarified many points for me. He mentioned David Bowie. He told me, David Bowie came to the Buddhist society. That is how we met. I said, come in, young man, and sit down. So why have you come to see me? David Bowie told me I want to be a monk. So I asked, but what is your talent? He told me music. So I said, then you should not be a monk. You should be a musician. And that's what he did. It was much better for him. David Bowie who was 19 at that time, 
developed his interest in Buddhism from reading Heinrich Harrer's book, Seven Years in Tibet, which described Heinrich Harrer's encounter with the Dalai Lama. David Bowie had been inspired by Tibet and wrote the song Silly Boy Blue, which made reference to Tibet. I asked Chime Rinpoche whether I could have a private interview and he was happy to oblige me. Once we had settled down in a small shrine room at the Buddhist Society, I asked him if he would give me the same advice as he'd given David Bowie. And he replied, are you also talent with music like David Bowie? I smiled. No, not like David Bowie and not rock music. I played blues and I was mainly a singer. Chime Rinpoche asked for an explanation of blues. I gave it. He asked whether it was as famous as the music David Bowie played. I replied, regretfully, that blues had been famous in the late 1960s, but that now it was waning. Chime Rinpoche shook his head. No, I don't think so. Not for you. But not Monk. Monk is not good for you. He said that he couldn't see so clearly where I should go, but better you have Kandro. Yes, not celibate. You must have Kandro. This is better for you. Chime Rinpoche thought I should go out to India and Nepal and then see what happened. I told him that this is what I had planned to do after the foundation year was over. I asked whether I could take notes and he told me that was fine with him. Then he asked, what is it that you see when you look at the world? A mass of colours and shapes, sounds and textures, fragrances and tastes, and then I make sense of that according to what I know from what I have learned or absorbed through living. Yeah, good, he replied. You sense, you see the relative. Phenomena all the time are changing. But how do you perceive phenomena as a whole? That threw me a little because I was not quite clear where these questions were tending. Well, I'm sorry if this sounds stupid, but I see them as a whole simply by not seeing any artificial dividing lines between them. Yeah, not stupid. The whole is only seen in the absolute. For example, if you are watching a river, how do you know it is a river? There is no continuity in the particles of water. From moment to moment the water changes and you do not see the same river twice. It only becomes a river through the absolute nature of flowing water because there the particles are undivided. Unless there is the absolute you can't see connection between particular phenomena. Is this clear to you? I said that it was. He waited till I'd finished writing. 
So, we must never confuse relative with absolute. Mostly we see only the relative and see it as being completely real. We become engrossed in particular things we are doing, we once did or we will do in the future. These particulars become so very real to us that we see nothing else. If some of these things seem to go wrong, we become agitated or sorrowful. This is like being tricked by an imitation snake. If you go into a room where there's a toy snake and you think it's real, you may be frightened. But as soon as you see it's not a real snake, it ceases to be frightening. So, what do you say to this? That it's the same with everything in the relative conditioned sphere of perception. If we see people as hostile, then we relate to them as if they were hostile, or whatever our perception happened to be. Yes, so by seeing that individual disconnected phenomena are not the whole of reality, we become free from attaching to them, as if they were true reality. Now, how do you come to see the absolute truth? By silent sitting? Yes, but what is your perception of the world in that silent sitting? Well, I would not conceptualise about what I saw or what was happening in the sense fields. Yeah, good. You can't see reality as a collection of objects. You can't find reality in one particular place. You can't find reality by making patches of relative truth next to each other until all vision is covered with patches. You can't find reality like that. The absolute is always free of conceptual patches. It's only because of the absolute that the relative exists. But you can't see the absolute as you would see a relative part of the absolute. It's like the eyes. They see, but they cannot see themselves. A knife cuts, but it can't cut itself. So to see absolute reality, you must not cling to relative perception. I suddenly had a question because there seemed to be something dualistic about the way in which the world was being relegated. Would it be necessary to destroy the relative in order to see the absolute? No, he laughed, they're not in conflict. The relative comes from the absolute. The relative arises naturally and spontaneously. It's only our dualistic way of seeing that causes attachment. Where there is no attachment to relative phenomena and where we don't see relative as absolute, there is no division between relative and absolute. The absolute is like the moon 
and the relative truth is like a reflection of the moon in the surface of a lake. In dualistic vision, we think the reflection is the real moon. We do not have to destroy the reflection to see the real moon. So, in your meditation, you have to be on the knife edge between affirming and denying the relative world. You can't make this happen though. You can only prepare because it's beyond contriving.